Well, when it comes to 1 Thessalonians, this is the final stretch. The finish line is at the end of this evening. This is the close of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be doing 2 Thessalonians next week. That's okay. And as we've gone through Thessalonians, we've, we've been hearing about Paul's delight in the way that the Thessalonians heard, embraced, and took their stand on the gospel. And how their response to the gospel rang out amongst the churches in Asia. We heard about the concerns that they had. Concerns about the future. Concerns that Paul was able to put to rest. Because their future was secure in the one in whom they had put their trust. And so here at the end of the letter, Paul wants them to stand firm together. Working together is something we spend a lot of time on in our world. There are seminars you can go to, there are courses, there is all kinds of stuff about learning how to work together because we, we kind of usually need it. Um, what do you do, though? Because the reality is, and I say this gently, there's the people you've got to work together with. And sometimes they're a bit different. You probably find the same when it comes to me. What do you do? Do you just try and get rid of the people who you can't work easily with? You could try this, he says, hoping this will work. Hey, guys. Hey, you've got something to tell me. Uh, yes, well, it's like this. Look at you, my IT team. Yeah. Team players, each and every one of you. Yeah, well, she... Uh... There's no room for people who can't act in a team on my team. Excuse me. Hello? What? Well, if you can't work as a team, you're all fired. <laughs> That's it, you heard me. Fired. Get your things and go. Hello, security. Everyone on floor four is fired. <laughs> Escort them from the premises. And do it as a team. Remember, you're a team, and if you can't act as a team, you're fired too. <laughs> Dawn, get on to recruitment. Get them to look for a security team that can work as a team. They may have to escort the current security team from the building for not acting like a team. <laughs> team. Team, 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 team. <laughs> I even love saying the word team. <laughs> you probably think that's a picture of my family. Uh-uh. It's the A-team. <laughs> Bowling, Doyle, Tiger, the jewellery man. A whole lot of them. <laughs> so what do you want to tell me? Well, it's just not working out. <laughs> I'm not sure that that had a lot to do with what I'm going to preach on, but it was just so funny. <laughs> no, seriously, though, when, when it comes to working together, there are cultures you can have, aren't there? There's the culture where it says any problem, don't mention it. Keep it secret. Don't deal with difficulty. Run hide, deny, or you can try the other one, which is tear yourselves to pieces, which is another common approach. How do we function as a team? Team, love saying the word. How do you function together as believers when the one thing we know more than anybody else in this world is that every single person we work with is a sinner. 
do you do that? It's serious, isn't it? Well, tonight, as we open the final section of Paul's letter to the first letter to the Thessalonians, we're going to look at what it means to stand together. And what Paul says, and although it seems to be rapid fire with a lot of things, I hope you see with me that there is an undergirding to all of these instructions that helps us to see how we too can stand together as one. So let's pray as we open God's word together. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you that in your word we can hear you speak in accents clear. Lord, we pray that as we open your word, we would be attentive to it. That we would be receptive of it. And that we we would be obedient to it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk about working together, it's it's an interesting thing that we talk in different terms to the way a lot of the world talks because one of the big themes that is being run in our world today is the issue of rights. What is my right? What is my expectation of what others will give me? What is my thing in this? What is my stake? And how do I make sure that my stake is met? It's interesting, that's not how the New Testament talks at all. New Testament talks more about responsibilities towards one another. Responsibilities that look to the other's interests. Let's take a look at the first one. Um, Responsibility to leaders. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. The first bit is, is about these it's about the leaders of the church in Thessalonica, and he's, they're described, what they do is described in three ways. They, they work, it's actually the word for, for a labourer who's just working. The NIV threw in the word hard to try and get across the idea that it's labouring, not sort of just, I don't know, something else. But the word is work. Those who work care and admonish. Now, we get the idea of people working. We get the idea of caring. We want people to care for us. It's nice to have people who care for us. It's interesting that Paul puts as one of the positive attributes of those whose task is to lead to be people who admonish people who are set aside by the community to say to the community, which are a community of sinners, just like the one they've set aside, hey, we need to talk about this. It's interesting as we look at this whole discussion around... I mean, you... If you think this is uncomfortable for me as a leader in this congregation to stand up and preach on, you're right. It does feel uncomfortable, but it's so important. 
It's so important that we don't do what our world does. Have you ever noticed something that has appeared? I think they've really gained in prominence since COVID. But you see them on the walls of shop after shop, business after business, a sign that says something like this. Who's noticed them? They're everywhere now, aren't they? Isn't that sad? Isn't that a sad indictment on our culture? That we have to put that everywhere. Because we got into this thing of entitlement. I've walked into this shop. I shouldn't have to wait more than two minutes before being served. Well, why is there not one on the shelf? Why can't I get what I want, when I want, how I want? And the danger is that that mentality is so easy to take everywhere in life. That sense of entitlement, that sense of I should get what I want. Friends, don't bring it into the church. And I don't say that just because I'd be on the receiving end. Don't bring it into the church. And for that matter, keep it out of the shops as well. (laughs) Because there's two ways you can go with this kind of a passage, a passage that talks about, um, well, acknowledging those who are leading, uh, holding them in highest regard, in love. There are two ways you can go. You can go the very... Well, I'm going to call it the Renum model because that's the name of the manager in that little clip. The, you guys work as a team and I'll just sack you if you do anything that I don't like. The, the autocratic leader who's, who, let's face it, people have pointed to passages like this in the scriptures and used them to justify the abuse of authority. Right? There is no room for that. There is no room for a system in which you cannot call your leaders to account. You need to be ready to call me to account. I need you to admonish me sometimes. I do. Just like you need me to admonish you. Holding someone in high regard, in love, is not kowtowing to their every whim. We know that. We know it with children. We should know it with each other. But the other mistake is to champion our own cause and ignore those whose task it is or ignore any any sense in these verses that there is a rightness in respect for those who lead. It's interesting that Paul finishes this little section by talking about living in peace with each other. I'm going to tell you a story. This story is not true. It's made out of pieces of true stories. All the pieces are true, but to protect the guilty, I'm not going to name names and I've kind of coloured it in, okay? There's my disclaimer. There is a church. Let's call it St Frederick's. St Frederick's had a problem, and their problem was that their carpet was threadbare. What will we do with our threadbare carpet, they said. Well, one group in the church said, 
we should rip out the carpet. Floorboards are really nice. We've got timber floors. Let's polish them up. Another group in the carpet said, look, to be honest, this place is a bit cold. Why don't we just carpet the whole thing? It used to just be a carpet down the aisle, but let's cover it right out to the sides. Another group said, well, yes, as long as it's really, really cheap carpet, because we need to commit our money to the service of the gospel, not to carpeting a room. And another group said, well, the problem is we, we, we really need to make this place a place where we gather, a place we invite people into, somewhere that is inviting for people. We need to actually do some work on the aesthetics of our buildings so that people feel comfortable to come in here. And they fought about it and contested and contested. Can I ask you, can I suggest to you that any one of those options would have been better than the fight that they got over which one they should choose? No matter how bad you thought putting new carpet in, you should have stayed with the old one, well, it's not as serious as the fight that ensued. No matter how bad it may be to argue whether the money should be uh, cheap on the carpet and, and put into ministry versus spend more on the carpet to make the place look good, no matter which mistake you make, if you want to put it in those terms, it won't be nearly as big as the mistake of tearing your church apart over what jolly carpet goes in. A fragment of true story. It was an argument like this and a family left the church because they didn't like the answer. If you think this stuff doesn't happen in churches, come to some a bit more often. Friends, one of the things that we do as the people of God is we do set aside home group leaders, community cell leaders. We set aside our wardens. You've set me aside. We've set Glenn aside. And that means each of us is kind of sitting there looking at those who are, in a sense, in, who've been put in authority over us, who are working for our good, to care for us, to admonish us where we need it. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says, make their work a joy, not a burden, because that's of no value to anyone. Yes, there'll be times you need to call them to account. We know that, don't we? We had that painful time last year and we had to call a leader to account because he had strayed from the gospel with our the former archbishop. It was not comfortable. But in doing so, it's no excuse to then uh, be disrespectful. It's no excuse to, to mock. We are still called to hold in honour those who work among us. That's our responsibility towards leaders. Well, this thing about living in peace with one another starts to raise the question of what's our responsibility to the, well, to the people sitting around you? What's our responsibility to each other? Verse 14, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, 
encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Notice there's a few groups of people here who it talks about us looking out for in some way or other. The, the idle. We're to warn. Why do we warn them? What does the idle do? The idle presumes. The person who is idle lets you do all the work for them. Let's you. Well, let's flip this. When we're idle, what we do is pass the burden to the, those around us. We are actually called to be busy, to be workers, to be workers who don't presume on the Christian community. One of the things that we find coming up is... is in the New Testament, believers who just assumed that the Christian community would look after their needs and so they didn't know to go to work. They didn't need to do anything. They could just let the Christian community look after their needs. Cool. I don't know, I'll stay home and play cod. Whatever it is. Go and play golf. No, the idea is that we care for one another by not being idle. And when we see one another idle, we admonish one another. That's what we do. We warn, lest they remain idle, because that is an undoing of Christian community. Same with those who are disruptive. The one who loves to be a bit of the centre of attention. Maybe you know people like this. Maybe you are people like this. who for that sense of affirmation can be a jarring note in what is going on. Pulling people's focus away from what, say, the study of God's word, from praying together. On the other hand, there are some in our community who are going to be not idle or disruptive, they're just plain down, disheartened. Maybe their world has been shaken by events, maybe they've lost their job, maybe they're just struggling with who they are. Encourage the disheartened. Build them up. That's our task, isn't it? Those who are weak, who lack strength, it's interesting, Paul doesn't kind of expound much what weak means. Weak in what? Weak in faith? Yes. Weak in body? Yes. Weak in, just insert the word, that's yes. <laughs> we care for each other. And where we see one another lacking in strength, we can be strength for one another. And with everyone, be patient. God is transforming every one of us into the image of Christ. And if you're anything like me, it's an incredible testimony to the great majesty and power of God that he can get me that far. 
We are works in progress. Be patient with others as they are patient with you. That means we don't uh, pay back wrong for wrong. People in this room are going to wrong you. I am. You're going to wrong each other. Because we are sinful people gathered in community, it's going to happen. That's not an excuse for it to happen. It's not justifying it happening, but it happens. If we get into the payback scheme, well, that's a disaster. Instead, Paul says, strive to do what is good for each other, for everyone else. As a church, we've said that we want to be a good place to meet Jesus. And part of that was the idea that we actually wanted this to be a good place to meet Jesus, a safe place to meet Jesus, an encouraging place to meet Jesus, a place where, a, a welcoming place, all of those things that are implicit in that wonderful word, good. If you've seen our roadmap, and if you haven't, there'll be copies up the back, I'm sure, that uh, you can grab and take. But one of our um, culture issues is we said we wanted to be a church that grows in community. It is Jesus who calls us to church together. We are not just individuals. We're part of one another. We must be committed to that gathering in community, to helping one another to grow as disciples of Jesus. The idea in the New Testament is always that Jesus, who proclaimed the kingdom of God, calls us to be part of community, of church. That thing that is something about an action, what we do together as we gather, more than it is certainly not anything about a building. What's your responsibility to one another? To care for each other. To care enough to speak the hard words when they need to be spoken, but speak them in love to care for one another in such a way that you speak the needed words, to build them up, to encourage them, to strengthen them. Responsibility towards our leaders, responsibility towards one another, responsibility towards God. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what God wants from you? Here you go. He wants you to rejoice. Always. Now, this is a funny thing because Paul already knows and will know in far greater detail just how nasty the world can get. And yet he will continue. He, he has a, a, a big section at the end of his letter to the Philippians which he writes from a prison to say, rejoice always. I say it again, rejoice why can we rejoice always, even in that kind of stuff? Because of what's in the first five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. The God who has rescued us, who has given us a secure eternity. The God who will most certainly keep us for the last day when we will stand before him with joy and enjoy all the fullness of what it means to be the children of God made children by the will of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, rejoice. 
rejoice. Here's one that I find I often get rebuked on. It's so easy for us to moan, to complain, to talk about why the world is not how we'd like it to be. Oh, we're back at entitlement, aren't we? Rejoice. Rejoice. When I was just starting out in in ministry, I was uh, a theological student and I was going along to a church as a student minister. There was a guy at the church that I was going to. Every time he said, how are you? He said, you know, I'm really good for an old bloke. And it just, you walked taller for the rest of the day just for that one comment. He just, it was so, it was genuine. Some of you will remember the name Ken Baker. He was like that. He was somebody you'd met and walked taller for meeting. Wouldn't it be lovely to be those people? To look again at why we've got reason to rejoice. And knowing that everything we have has come as a wonderful gift from an outrageously generous God, that then drives us to the next thing, to pray. To pray and to pray and to pray and to give thanks. If it's troubling us, we ask the God who gives generously. If it's not troubling us, we give so much thanks. Because he's the God who gives generously. we just got to keep going back there. here Paul puts his finger on a danger and it's a danger that we've got to wrestle with for a bit because we've got to try and understand it. He says, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Now our issue here is, is this word because we struggle to know what it means. Just find books on it and find them number that agree with each other. That's a bit of a tricky one. See, in the Old Testament, prophecy meant a particular thing. It was people who would say, well, in the writing prophets, you would hear, it begin, the book begins with, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Isaiah, son of Amos. Whoever it is. And then they would speak And often through the speech, when they spoke about things, it would end with, uh, says the Lord, says Yahweh. They, They spoke for God. So is that what we're dealing with when we come to the New Testament? Is it people who are speaking the living words of the living God like we find in the Bible? Is it new revelation, a new unpacking? like we get in the Bible. Well, no, because you're never called to test the Bible. You're called to obey it, but you are called to test the prophecies. So they cannot be on the same level, cannot be the same thing. Others have gone in a different direction. They've said, no, 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 it's preaching, what I'm doing right now. This is prophecy. Let me tell you what the Word of God says. 
with that one as well. My problem with that one is that Paul talks about it as something that the community all could do. And what's more, Paul has a lot to say about preaching. He has a word for it. If he wanted to talk about preaching, he can. He doesn't. He talks about it as something distinct. When I was in New Zealand, uh, we'd had, we had uh, one person come to a conference who came and said, well, I'm here to speak words of prophecy to each of you. And what proceeded sounded like a page out of the horoscope section of the paper. And um, you know, you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger and you know, don't go to work uh, um, on wearing black clothes during this. It was just weird stuff that really belonged in a horoscope section, not in the Bible. Doesn't seem to be that. When, so I'm, I'm going to give you the Peter Judge Mears definition. This is mine, and it's a working definition. All right? Feel free to rip it to shreds. Looking at what is written, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 and 15, where it talks about prophecy, looking at how the New Testament speaks, it seems to be something like applying the word of God to current local circumstances with insight given by the Spirit of God for the edification of his people. It seems to be something like that. In the Old Testament, the prophets actually weren't simply coming up with divine speech out of thin air. Many of them are actually steeped in the Scriptures. And you will hear echoes in the words of the prophets of the books of Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, the books of the law seem to be, but especially Deuteronomy. They reflect on what God says in his word and what is going on in the current circumstance. The two come together with an insight given to them by the Spirit of God. And I think that makes sense of the continuity and the fact that the New Testament just throws this word out without ever explaining what it is as though everybody should know. Unfortunately, they don't explain what it is, so we have to kind of scratch. Can you cope with that as a definition for start? Okay. So Paul says, don't be the kind of community that doesn't let that happen. Don't be the kind of community that looks with contempt as someone seeks to bring the word of God to bear on circumstances around us with insight. Don't dismiss, but do test. Do check them. Check them. That's something that the scriptures have always... uh, In in Deuteronomy, the, the Old Testament prophet was to be tested in the New Testament, it's the prophecies themselves that are to be tested. And what do you test them to? Well, you test them to two things. You test them to their authenticity with what is the, re- what is the known revelation of God. You test them by the scriptures. You, if they're applying the word of God to current circumstance, you test them by the word of God. You bring them to the word of God and they should be in concur- concurrent with it. They, they should be in agreement with it. But not just bring them to the word of God. Also ask the question, what's this do? What is it for? Is it for the edification, the building up of God's people? 
then weigh them. What's good, you hold on to. What's not, you get rid of. But you don't despise it. You don't belittle it. I think that's a trap for us in the evangelical church. Because we don't like anything that smacks of too wild or radical or spiritual. And yet we serve a God who shakes the earth with his voice, who upholds all things by his word of power. You see, in the end, for Paul, being a Christian community is about being a place that loves because we are loved, that respects because we are the recipients of God's outrageous grace. So we fulfill our responsibilities to our leaders. We, having set them aside, we let them do what we set them aside to do. We listen to them. Care for one another. We warn each other when we need warning. We strengthen one another where we need strengthening. We make sure that we're a community that are known for the fact that we have a good and gracious and outrageously generous God. And that shapes how we talk and how we act together as grateful, rejoicing people. Attentive. Reflecting on how God is at work in our world. Taking care not to belittle those who are seeking to apply his word to the circumstances around us. There's a lot of do's in these verses, aren't there? It kind of comes rapid fire. But Paul finishes it off with the reminder of how it all hangs together. Because in the end, it is not your obedience to your leaders that will have you in a safe standing on the last day. It is not your ability to work well as a community. It is not you at all. It is the outrageous grace of God that everything peace. Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus and it's all the work of the one who called you, who is faithful and who will do it. I find it interesting even to look at the tag end. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know what's interesting in these verses? The word, the Greek word, here you go, you can use this in a sentence and people look at you as a weirdo. The word is adelphoi. And it just means brothers and sisters. It appears three times. One of them they decided to translate as all God's people, but it's just the same word, brothers and sisters. 
all the way through here, he says, you are a family. You are a family. You've been made a family by the outrageous grace of God. You are a family. That's why you greet one another with a whole... In the ancient world, that's what you do with family. You greet your family members with joy and with respect. So greet each other as family. Treat each other as family. For those of you with really, really badly dysfunctional families, not like that one, though we will be. But in that sense of loving one another, connected to one another, upholding one another, rejoicing in one another, because we have a Father who has called us as his children and he is gloriously good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus' death and resurrection, our broken, sinful, rebellious, foolish natures are met by the outrageous, loving, merciful generosity that you hold out to us in Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus' death on the cross, we are into a new family. We thank you that in Jesus' work on the cross, our future is made secure. Our Lord and God, we pray that you would help us to respond to your grace by giving ourselves to each other. Not looking to one another as those who can meet our needs, but asking how we might meet theirs. To uphold one another, honour one another, and above all, to acknowledge that you are the one who has given us everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to introduce you all to a new song. This song's called The Jesus Way. It's written by a guy called Phil Wickham, and he's a um, contemporary songwriter at the moment, writing a lot of Christian music for churches. Um, and this is one that he released just at the start of this year. Um, but he talks about what it means to follow Jesus and to be a child of God. And um, it's very relevant to, to Tube talking about sort of the story behind the song when he wrote it. Um, and he... He references the first verse of the song, which reads, If you curse me, I will bless you. If you hurt me, I will forgive. And if you hate me, then I will love you. I choose the Jesus way. If you're helpless, I will defend you. If you're burdened, I'll share the weight. If you're hopeless, let me show you there's hope in the Jesus way. And he says that these words, they sort of carry a bit of weight for him in that he reads them, but, you know, he wrote them, but he still reads them and he goes, that's not me. That's what I want to be, but it's not who I am. And he says... That, you know, if you're like he is and I am too, and if that's not you, then this, let this song be a, a prayer to God. To say, God, will you make me this way? 
will you make me into a follower of Jesus? And I just wanted to encourage you with these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will 